0: morning. Uh, There's a story that Martin Luther, when he was in the castle translating and hiding from the Pope, he thought he saw Satan and he threw his ink jar at the wall. And some historians in the group can tell me if that's even true. But my ink pen broke before the sermon. So I was kind of like, man, I feel like Martin Luther, like Satan's after me. So if you see the dark on the hands and if it happens to be on my face, I just praise Jesus because we're going forward. We're looking at James chapter four. this is uh, the second part really of what we started last week. We'll look at verses 11 to 17 and I, I mentioned last week that that passage 1 to 10 is some of the harshest language in the New Testament, especially dealing with repentance and uh, we won't be reading that passage as much this morning, but we will look at it and lean from it. but what I'm as I'm just personally meditating on James and, and thinking about what I want to express to you guys, uh, my hope is that you'll see Jesus is inviting you to live an exalted life now. To, To right now in your life be as excited and everything you would ever want you can have right now in Christ if he's the source. And the world says that won't work, go after so many other things. Uh, Even the Christian world will often say maybe one day, someday that'll happen, but right now it's not going to happen. And yet we find that, I'm not saying everything will go swimmingly, whatever that word means anymore, but I just mean when we go to Christ, when we make him the center, James is telling us you will be exalted. And so that's the backdrop to our passage. Um, the, The original audience that he's writing to, it's hard to know exactly what they're dealing with but they seem to be people who would check off certain boxes of religion. I think they're the same boxes that we would check off. Like, do I go to church, do I read my Bible sometimes, do I not do this, do I do that? And what makes James an interesting letter is he's constantly taking us outside into different boxes, to different, I'm gonna use the word what's. What what, what are we called to in James? The different what's, we'll, we'll have that in the outline. But more importantly, James also does something that's fantastic. And that he's constantly giving us the why. Like, why are we doing these things? Why are we showing partiality? Why are we sinning with our tongues? Why are we having fights and quarrels? Again, things that most Christians are like, oh, that's wrong? Like, that's even a problem? I'm over here trying to do this, these boxes, and these are the what's. Not showing partiality, loving my neighbor, using my tongue to praise God and love people, to not have f- fights and quarrels. And then James even more goes underneath that. What is the why? How do you do it? How do you get underneath it? And then in our passage, after talking about being humble and turning to the Lord and drawing near to God, he gives two, I think, illustrations slash tests to see if we're being humble. So I'm gonna actually just remind you, in, chapter, in the first 10 verses he asks, what causes quarrels, what causes fights? That's the what. If you're you're tracking with James, you're like, oh, yeah, I guess we have those. Those are the what's. And then he says, is it not this you desire and do not have so you murder, you covet and cannot attain so you fight and quarrel? He's giving us the why. Oh, this deep other inner world going on. And so that's important to understand. And at the very end of our passage, he says, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. That promise of exaltation, of being lifted up, just insert there, it's a very religious word, just insert all of your deepest longings are met in whatever that word means. And we'll unpack that as we go. But now he gives these two examples. So we'll read together starting in verse 11 to 17. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know that what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. This is the word of the Lord. Father, you give us so many scriptures to draw us close to you, and you've given us James, who really really packs a punch and yet Lord you know that our hearts are hardened sometimes we're so callous we need we need this we need the tough love the strong reminder of our proneness to wander from you so Lord I pray we approach this moment this time to hear your word with honesty opening our hearts to you Lord and I pray Lord if there is someone here who is not a Christian who still questions the truths, the claims of you being God, that they would hear for the first time that you are true or you are a God who saves sinners, of which we are in need and we are the least. In your name we pray, amen. Some years ago, uh, a, a book hit the Christian world called Ordering Your Private World. Many of you probably know it, many of you probably read that book. Um, I love that book as a, um, as a young Christian. I remember even years later, it kept being reproduced and redistributed. Re, um, but what was so helpful about it is, in some ways, not that new. And that is the concept that we have a private world. Like as I even say that, everyone in the room, I think, would say, yeah, I, I understand that, I believe that. And yet it's one of those truths that we often go, but I, I kind of forget about that. The author's premise is that true change doesn't come when you deal with the external world, but it comes when the internal world is ordered and and processed in Christ. Now, I'm not really borrowing from that book, but I'm just gonna take that concept and say, that's what James is really doing. James is telling us outward world problems, fights and quarrels and judging and arrogant planning and different things like that, but he says the the, the real root, the real problem was what's happening on the inside. What's going on inside of your heart? And so most of us as Christians, I think, can say, I recognize true change comes when my heart is changed. But if we're honest, most of us go about our lives fixing the outer world, right? We're fixated on the outer world changes. If I can do this thing, if I can do this thing, if I can make this adjustment, I'll get the inner peace I long for. So we have this crazy duality we live If we're honest. That's what he's been talking about the entire letter. Double-minded people. We say, I know that my heart needs Jesus, and from that will flow the fruit. But so much of what I obsess over is my outer world, hoping it'll somehow fix the problems inside. So I'm hoping this morning that we will come freshly to this concept. And I, I didn't read it, so I'll read it now. At the end of 10, I already mentioned it. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. This idea of humility as being the, the center of our soul. It's, it's us coming to a right dependency with Jesus, with the Father, with the, with the Spirit, in such a way that he is our strength for living, and that's where the flourishing comes. So true change will come as we return to that posture internally. That's what we're gonna look at. Three steps that we're gonna talk about, three sort of concepts I wanna process. This is an alliteration. I know I'm doing that a lot, I kinda like it. If You ever get tired of it, I apologize. Three Ps, pride, people, plans, and praise. We're gonna move through those quickly. Pride, people, plans, and praise. So beginning with pride, the what, every every step has a what and a why. The what of pride is simply the obvious things that we've been seeing in James. It's, It's a person or a group of people living out of themselves, out of the flesh. It's, it's saying, I can do this. I've got resources when, in fact, you do not, right? You've, we've all been somewhere where someone, the group kind of shows up, and there's that one person who, like, acts like they're in charge, and you want to kind of go, like, you're not in charge. Like, that's pride, right? Like, you have to, like, have the skill set, and, and maybe someone needs to say you're in charge. Okay, I'm just using one example. Do we know what pride is? Does everyone know? Can I move on? Raise your hand if you don't know what pride is. Just kidding. It's a trick. That's what pride is, the opposite is humility. Humility, is, in its most simple understanding, is just a correct view of yourself. See, Christianity is not trying to make you think you're less than you are. I mean, I'll be the first to say, if we really aren't that bad, hallelujah, let's start preaching that truth. The problem is, if we are that bad, if we really have a problem as big as we have, the worst thing in the world we could ever do is act like it doesn't exist. And so what the scriptures do is they say, you really do have this life-ending cancerous soul, and you need the only medication, which is Jesus. And so humility is agreeing with that and living out of that truth, depending on him. I asked Shane, he was in the office this week working on his sermon, and he's going through John. And he had just preached John 15, that, that amazing passage about the vine and the branch, I said, just give me like one nugget I can maybe carry into this sermon, not really thinking he would say anything helpful, because I'm prideful, and he said, well, the word abide, there's a a definite semantic overlap and root of the word abode, home. So here's the image I want you to think of thanks to Shane. God has built you a home and you will thrive when that is the place you dwell. But we often are demanding to have, like, cruddy tents out in the yard. I want to do it on my own. And we're out there far away from the abode. We'll come and occasionally look around, borrow some food, and go back to our tent. And the rain's coming in, and we're cranky, and we're envisioning all the ways we can patch the tent. And all the while, God's like, I've got this home. Come in. Live out of this space. Let this be your inner world from which you live your life. That's humility. In our passage, we've been seeing humility mentioned a few times, with, juxtaposed with pride. Last week in chapter 4, verse 6, James says, he gives grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And then I've already mentioned in verse 10, the verse leading into this morning's discussion. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. But all the way back in chapter 1, he really begins with this idea, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. And so, you have this concept that James has been saying from the beginning. The word lowly, by the way, is how Jesus describes himself. Like, the one person who could brag, who could boast. How many of you can say, I've never sinned. I can walk on water. I mean... He's amazing, and yet he describes himself as lowly. And what he's saying is as far as we can understand this side of heaven, it's hard to get our mind around descriptors, but he's saying that word and that truth is the way you are to flourish, to be lowly, to think not not less of yourself, not to beat yourself up, but rather to see yourself as to flourish in union with the Father. Rather than trying to shake off God and say, I've got this, which is pride, to press in and say i need help not just occasionally not just on one or two things per day or a week but moment by moment i need to live out of that union with the father in christ so now then point number two and three are going to flow right out of that when we are prideful or conversely hopefully when we're humble we'll see it played out in people and plans so looking at people The verses that we read just come right at us. Verse 11, do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. So right off the bat, the what of point two, of this idea of um, how we treat people is this, that when we're prideful, we judge people. We speak against them. I think we all know what that feels like. That can be as, as far as like actual sort of declaring and judging someone to be beneath you, but it can just be internalized. You just, you sit down, you look at someone's shoes, and you're like, oh, <laughs> that figures. I mean, that's a judgment, right? We're constantly judging, and and that's the what. It's It's a constant thing, but the why of judging, really, is what's important. The why we judge is because we need a reason to be better. Right? Like, I need to make you lower than me so I feel better about myself. Where is that in the scripture? Let's look at what he says in this interesting language when he says, the one who speaks against a brother or judges them, or the brother, speaks evil against the law and judges the law. What does that mean to judge the law? That's very odd language in our modern ears, but here's simply what I think James is saying. When the law comes at you, what does it tell you? If you think of Romans seven, you think of Paul, when the law came to life, what, I died. When the law became real, in other words, when I stopped reducing the Bible's rules to something achievable, which none of us can actually achieve, and began to see it for what it is, this overwhelming image of God's righteousness, what Paul would say in Romans 7 is, I died and it led him to exclaim, who will rescue me? And the answer is, thanks be to Jesus. Now, if that's what I believe, and then I go over here and pretend I'm a little better than somebody, I'm judging the law. I'm saying the law isn't really condemning me. I'm I'm augmenting it. And so the point I want you to hear about how pride affects us in our relationship with people is, it's, it's not so often in preaching this kind of topic, it would say, when you slander, when you judge, you're harming the congregation. You're harming that person. And those are both true. But I want you to hear me, you're harming your soul. What James is warning us of is when I judge someone, whether they ever know it or not, I'm reprogramming my heart to think I'm living a better law than them. Where is grace at that point? Paul says in First Timothy, we've preached on this not too long ago, but he makes this statement in First Timothy that Christ, he says, here is a trustworthy saying. Like, that's Paul's way of saying, like, memorize this. Like write this down. Put this on your refrigerator. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom? Stan is the worst, no, of whom I am the foremost. That's not just something you sort of say just to kind of have like a motto, it's something you're to believe. Why would I wanna believe that? Because it's true. I would never wanna go to a doctor that routinely didn't tell me how bad it was. I wanna go to the doctor who says to me, it's this bad and I've got great news. Now that we know it's this bad, we've got this cure. That's the gospel. So when we go around telling ourselves about other people and judging them and speaking evil against them, we're destroying our own soul. A couple of quick quick applications as we move into the next part. You are doing this, so don't ask yourself, am I doing this? I'm doing this. We all, this side of heaven, have flesh and our flesh routinely judges people. That's often what we do to feel good about ourselves. It's sort of hidden. So really the question I'd ask you to do is, will you take some time even today to pull away with the Lord and pray, Lord, will you show me how I'm doing this? If you're not sure where you're doing it. You don't have to know all the places. Start with the most obvious low-hanging fruit where you feel like you just you could rightly judge. That person is clearly out to lunch. That that individual is off the reservation, right? Now, I I don't have a lot of time to say this. Judgment is such a strange thing. We are called to judge sin. Like that's, you know, I think the most misused, you know, you're so judgmental, you think this is a sin. Well, the Bible says that's a sin. My job is to just not think you, as you engage in that sin, are lost because of that. Any more than when I engage in sin, I'm lost because of that. Like I can't judge the person But as the church and as individuals, we can look at behaviors and say, that's wrong behavior, right? So that's a side, that's a caveat, but we all do that. Everyone knows you need to do that. Where we struggle is when we don't separate people from their actions. I think the way I I see this the most common in the world that just blows my mind is often like maybe on reports of a trial or talking about a person that they're a known liar, you know, have you ever read that? They're a liar. Well, no, they lie, but is that, Am I going to now name that person? Because I, I, have you ever lied? Like the moment I lie one time, am I now a liar? Right? So even the world does this. It tries to put people in the categories. They do this, they, they, it, labeling people. And what, what James is saying is that labeling of people is really a method of ourselves standing above them and saying, I'm better than you because I don't do what you do. And that's prideful. Humility says, as Paul said, I am the worst. Why would I say I'm the worst? Because I actually know my sin more than you do. I can see my own heart, my own thoughts, my own motives. If I ever, you know, the plank and the speck, if I ever come away from a person thinking they're slightly worse than me, I am, I'm off the I, I've lost my view of the gospel for that moment, and that's who it ultimately hurts. So I need to name and ask the Lord for what it is. I confess that I'm actually saying the law is no longer valid. <laughs> Somehow, some way, I slipped into a, a, a place of being better than someone else. I've judged the law. I, the third step would be of application with this area is to recognize you are being destroyed when you do it. Like, don't just think, well, it'd be nice to not do that for that person or for this society. It'd be be, it's destroying you, right? And then the fourth thought, and here's where I really want you to lean in application-wise because these are our ways of becoming humble, is when we are judging someone, when someone is in our mind just, we just can't stand them or whatever the feeling is, really I think the Lord would invite you to explore what is it you need, like what is your desire? What is that giving you? that What is God, how are you turning to that feeling over God? Right, Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, we talked about that last week. And yet, in what causes fights and quarrels you do not have, so you murder. What is it I don't have in my mind that the scriptures t- clearly tell me I really do have? What am I feeling robbed of in that relationship that's creating me such anger and tension that I would judge that person and, and speak evil against them? And then in the last thought, and these are application points, apply to everything we're talking about, but this gives you fresh opportunity to boldly approach the throne of grace. He gives more grace. But James is being super intense, knowing that it might take that to open our eyes, but the promise of, of the cross is always before us to come freshly to the throne of grace. So that's pride and people and now plans. Uh, these are all kind of cascading. Our pride affects how we see people and treat people. But James tells us our pride also affects how we uh, make plans. And this is harder because the first point I just made, everyone's like, I know I do that. We come to this point. I think the, the thought is like, what's the problem? Like play, we're all planner. Everyone loves to make plans. I'm really bad at it by the way, but not for redemptive reasons. Um, but I mean, most of us like to kind of get our calendars out and, you know, look for the vacations and the business opportunities and maybe I'll take that schooling. I'll go to that grad school. I'm going to do these things, right? We're planners. And so you come to James, and he says, come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. And you're like, yeah, sounds about right. I would love to make a little profit. You know, what's wrong with that? And so discussing this is like the proverbial water to a fish. Like, Trying to describe to a fish. It's all around you. It's, you're swimming through it. Can't you see this water? You know. Uh, we make plans. That's what we do. We assume everything's just going to unfold. So what's the problem? The what is that we are assuming we are in complete control of our lives, except for a few details that maybe God still takes care of. You know, he'll he'll deal with the pandemic and the larger market issues of the world. But I'm like, I've got my lane. This is what I do. And so I get to decide, I'm going to go to another town, I'm going to move, we're going to make a profit, yada, yada, yada. And I'll begin to tell people as if it's just a foregone conclusion. And, he, and what James is warning us of is that that is not humble. The what is you're feeling like you're the one in control of your life. So how does, what, what is the problem there? What is the underlying reason? And he goes on to explain in a very kind and, and very gentle way. Verse 14, you don't know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? You are a mist that just appears for a little time and then vanishes. I'm going to start telling people that when they tell me their plans. I recommend that to build how to win friends and influence people. Those are interesting plans. Do you recognize that you're just a mist? You just vanish in the wind? What's his problem? Why is it, what's the Why? Um, the doctrine of of creation and the doctrine of providence. We don't just believe God created the world from nothing, which he did, but we believe, and the Bible teaches clearly that God sustains every moment, every square inch of your being. Right now, oxygen flowing to your brain, giving you life, is 100% under the the tutelage of, of God, he's oh, He's overseeing that, he's causing that to happen. He's allowing you to live right now. If you, you could hate God and be the biggest atheist that had ever lived, and yet God, ironically, as you're making that statement in some Ted Talk, God's sustaining you right then and there. What is more prideful than that image, right? So that for all of our plans, all of our thoughts, Anytime I assume, I'm guaranteed not only tomorrow, but a year from now. And I feel in my body, not just sort of like, I hope this works, so this would be great. But, like, this is definitely happening. Like, I'm actually going to medicate myself while I'm bored at work on the vacation that's coming. Again, is that all? I'm not saying that's all wrong, but I'm saying let's pay attention to the fact that is God even in your mind at all when you do that and so what does James say instead you ought to say this if the Lord wills we will live and do this or that I'm gonna beg you to not start saying Lord willing now if you say that that's fine you can say Lord willing that's not the point he's making he's not saying hey insert an asterisk after every time you make a plan Lord willing rather James is saying please become a person who believes deeply in your soul that you need the Lord's will to be living and doing this or that. And that's what he says. Lord will, if the Lord wills, we will live. <laughs> do you hear that? I'll be a, if the Lord wills it, I will be a living being. I will still be on earth, still waking up and, and having my faculties to where then I can go do this or that. But why is, what's the big why? What's the big issue well, the big issue is God has invited us into the abode of His home, and in that home, as adopted sons and daughters, we we like we want to do things for Him and with Him, right? That becomes the orientation of our whole world. So I I didn't have I don't know that I have the greatest illustration, but here's an example, and I just the the heart of the illustration barely makes the point. So I'm just setting that up. Remember, I got ink on my hand before the sermon, so. You're at a, have you ever showed, this is a made-up thing, but I think versions of this have happened in my life. You show up somewhere, like let's say it's a restaurant, and there's a group of you. You finally got everyone together, and you show up, and you get there, and there's a huge wait. It's gonna be like however long. And there's that kind of group dynamic, like should we go somewhere else? Should we wait? What should we do? And one, one or two people, hey, me and so-and-so, we're just gonna go off. It was a good try, but we're gonna go over here. Has anyone ever been in that experience? And you just kind of feel like, no, the dream is slipping away. And then this threesome goes that way, and that too. And pretty soon it's like you and one person. Like Dah. like we had this idea, this fellowship, this moment. It could, be a, it could be like a dinner at Christmas with family. It could be anything. But the bottom line is as soon as the people start going out to their tents, you feel like you're losing something. God has said, look, we are, we are in him and he is in us. And when we sort of like walk out the door, like I'm just gonna go do my thing. I'm gonna go make my plan. I'm gonna go do what I want. It, it's sort of like I'm saying to God, I don't need you. I'm really not here for fellowship. I appreciate the free chips, etc. But I was here for me. And God's like, I love you. I want to help you. I want to be your resource. You will thrive in that reality. And so the point is, are we willing in our humility to allow Jesus to come with us and to to make our plans with him. Are we, you know, is this the right person to marry? Is this the right thing to study? Is this the right way to spend my time? I mean, and I think what would keep you from doing that? What would keep you from wanting to ask him and invite him into those places? Is it not this, the deep suspicion that he's going to say, you're going to stay single, you're going to be poor, you're going to get sick, you're going to not get that, you're going to not, don't we have that fear? All of our pride stems from a fear that God is not good. In the garden, Adam and Eve weren't questioning God's ability to rule the world, they questioned his ability to love them as he ruled the world. That is what unbelief does. That is how the enemy comes in, and that's how we get swept up in this pride-driven life we lead. It's not because we think we can actually do better than God, we just don't think God cares for us. And so humility is coming back to that place of knowing God cares for us. That leads us to our last point. I'll try to move quickly through this point, and that's praise, praise. Please stay with me, because I've struggled with this word and this concept much of my life, it's because of me, not because of it. But the human heart does everything out of affections. Our, our, we, we, we move and have our being because of the affections of our heart. And, and there are really, I think, two ways to describe our, affection, our affections going out. One would be praise, and the other would be boasting. And so I think boasting is when you're not, doing, you're not praising God, but you've got to praise something, Right? we're built to praise and what is boasting but praising ourselves that's exactly what james says if the lord wills it we will live and do this or that and then in verse 16 as it is you boast in your arrogance all such boasting is evil now he's not talking to people who go around bragging all the time he's simply saying when i engage in life apart from god the driving force of my heart is a boast that i can accomplish this but the alternative is praise which is what he's been saying throughout the letter. Humble yourself before the Lord and he will exalt you. And then in chapter one, verse nine, let the lowly brother boast, there's a boast, what in his exaltation? What are you boasting in if you're in Christ? I'm boasting in my praise of Jesus. Um, anyone go to concerts? I'm not a major concert person. But um, I've been to a couple, and I've always wished I was on the front row. You know, I've never, like, I like being at the back. Like, I always wish I was right on that front row. I've never gone to a concert that I wanted to be at and thought, I love nosebleeds. I don't really care what that person looks like up close. I want to be as close as I can get. Yet, I've never thought I belong on stage. I've never thought, you know what, I could probably sing that song better. And so I think concerts are a pretty good image of um, what it feels like to love something and to praise something, right? I mean, you watch the footage from the Beatles, maybe even Justin Bieber, you know, the, the, oh my gosh, and the tears, and the, that is worship. Unfortunately, it's the wrong being, but it's a worship. Uh, I I go to sporting events, and I'm always like, man, I wish I could be in the front row. I want to be as close to the action, and the athletes, and the, and the, but I've never thought I belong on the court. I mean, you would really hate that reality if I was on the court. So my point is, praise is what we're designed for. We love it. We, we contemplate it. We do it all the time. It, it's beautiful. The question is, is the object of the praise worthy? And that's where our doubt comes in. And yet, God is worthy, right? He is glorious. Like, we just, um, you just have to accept this by faith, but if you walk in the room next to LeBron, have I said this before? I think I've said this. If God walks in the room, just insert your person. Oh, Justin, I mean, Justin Bieber. I'm pointing at my wife. She likes Justin Bieber. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. It's other people in the room. I really want you to know we would not, we would not vacillate. We would just immediately worship, like, Jesus, like, oh, my goodness. And rightly so. He is the author of all things, and he loves you and knows you and cares for you, and he is calling you to to worship him. And here's the strange, glorious, kind of crazy reality is that in our praise of him, we are blessed. I think some of our unbelief is, okay, I'll praise God. I mean, he'll get praised. And I guess after that's over, I'll go do something constructive. It's like, no, 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 like when you are praising God, you're the one benefiting. And I'm now gonna give an illustration that you have to give me just a little bit of grace on, okay? Because it happened yesterday and I debated whether to use it. But I was sitting in our, our living room just talking to my wife about a book I was reading and kind of being somewhat serious. I wouldn't say I was too emotional, maybe a little bit. And our little dog, Pepper, we had come to find out somewhat of a therapy dog. She loves Emily. I don't know what would ever make her leave Emily, but she gets up, comes over to the ottoman and looks at me like I'm coming in. That's the look she gives me, like I've got to scoot over. Jumps in and turns around so that I can pet her. But she wasn't begging to be petted. And as I did it, all the, all the science, you know, you've read the, all the stuff about like when you have a lap dog. If you don't have one, these are really, it's true stuff. It like calms you down. You live like three years longer if you pet a dog. Have you all heard this? And I'm just sitting there talking to Emily, and all of a sudden I'm like, what just happened? And Emily and I talked about it, it's like she sensed something was wrong with me, and she moved over to my area and then backed in. And you could easily cynically say, oh, she just wanted to be pet. No, I promise you that's not what she wanted. She knew I would be blessed from that moment. Now, whether you buy that truth or not, I don't care. Here's the, here's the illustration. God knows you need to praise him to be okay. He's not being arrogant. He's not being sinful or prideful. You are most fully yourself when you are worshiping him. It's not getting in the way of other stuff. It's not taking away from what you really want to do. And even more amazingly, because his Holy Spirit lives in you, we can praise him at every moment of the day. We don't just have to carve out particular places. Though there are places that we are called to do it uniquely like worship or private devotion, we can praise him at all times. We can praise him in everything we're doing and that is our design. What is the chief end of man? Can you say it with me? To glorify God and enjoy him. Pause today, tomorrow, and the next day, and the next day, and the next day, and the next day. Why do I say that? Because sometimes when we say the word forever, we just throw that into the future. The chief end of man is one day, someday, way off in the future to glorify God and enjoy him. But right now, it's up to me. That is not the Bible. That is like demonic. Right now, the chief end you have is to glorify God and enjoy him right now. And he's invited you in because he has covered you with his blood. You are completely loved if you are in Christ. And that is what humility looks like. Let us pray. Jesus, we are prone to plan things apart from you, to judge our brothers and sisters, really judging you and saying you're not doing the right job or judging the law and saying we're slightly better than them. But Lord, I I know those in this room that are Christians, I know we all know that is wrong and we are sorry. Forgive us. Thank you for Brother James who you, uh, through your spirit's presence in his life, you're calling him as an apostle uh, through the transmission of these words all the way down through the years has given us wisdom that's hard to hear but so needed right now. We are a prideful people. We really do think we do better apart from you. That's almost not a question for many of us. But yet, Lord, we need to repent of this. Holy Spirit, we need you to open the eyes of our hearts to believe freshly that to praise you, to worship you, to be in your presence, to be in your abode, would give us does give us life, does give us perspective, does give us the wisdom we need to face the trials of this world, longing for our home in heaven. Lord, will you help us this morning to take the proper steps to repent of these things and to see you more beautifully than we've ever seen you before. Not because you're changing, but because our own unbelief is slowly but surely being wiped away by your mercy. Amen.